everyone. Welcome back to the Hand Me Up podcast, a podcast where two Zimbabwean women in the academic space share their journey toward attaining a PhD in the UK. As two women who aren't in the physical sciences field, the focus of this podcast will be on us sharing our journey as social scientists. We'll be sharing the highs, the lows and everything in between. We're your hosts, Rue and Gwen. Let's get started. Welcome back. Welcome back, Gwen. How are you doing? I am great. <laughs> I'm I'm really good. Um, I'm just excited to be um, with you again to continue this journey of demystifying the PhD journey. Um, uh, in the last two episodes, so episode one and episode two, um, Rue and I shared our journey from high school um, to doing our bachelor's degrees and then master's degrees. So I suppose the natural segue is that um, in this episode, we are going to be talking about the journey from master's to PhD. Um, but before we get into that, guys, um, Rue, I don't know, I just think it's important that we just talk about how amazing the reception has been um, from our listeners um, for the last two episodes or just the podcast itself. What have you been thinking or what are you feeling about all this? I am literally buzzing. Uh, I mean, perhaps you can't tell from my voice right now because I just have to keep calm and I don't want to make too much noise for you, but <laughs> wow. I think the first thing that comes to mind is gratitude. I am so, so grateful for everybody that has made noise about us, shared, liked, followed, subscribed, told your family, friends, etc. Um, Gwen and I had many moments where we kept saying, oh my gosh, look at our followers. We did not even expect to reach that amount of followers or the amount of people that shared on their timelines. I mean... I even got to space where I wasn't even sharing on my Instagram because I felt as if I was probably just bombarding people. So <laughs> thank you guys. Really, really appreciate it and long way to continue. Gwen, how, how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm I'm just loving it. I'm reveling in it. Um I I can't believe the reception. I mean, we we've talked about this, Rue, when we started the podcast that if we could just impact or engage with one or two people, that's enough for us. We're not in this to have thousands and thousands of people in it we just want to send the elevator down and just have people or a person engage with us but we've been engaging with people from all parts of the world people who wouldn't naturally listen to podcasts like ours but they're engaging sending comments um so i'm excited and i'm encouraged so we're so grateful guys and yeah keep engaging with us um and yeah we can't wait to for you guys to listen to more episodes so without further ado this week um we are going to um discuss like i said earlier that in between finishing a master's and then the decision to applying for a phd but before we go through kind of like the phd application process Rue and I thought it was important that we discuss some of the, you know, the things that might discourage people um, from doing a, a PhD. And one of them, or one of the things that we discuss and we're going to start off with is whether you need to um, have, uh, whether the knowledge level um, is the most important thing. And by knowledge level, we mean your grades, so what you got for your A-levels and then your master's or your bachelor's degree, if you didn't get high grades, should you not apply for a PhD? Um, whilst universities set the um, minimum requirements they have, um, Rue and I will just share what we've learned um, from real experiences, just so you guys can be encouraged. Yeah, certainly. So um, I think the, the whole application process or, or the process of deciding what you want to do is almost like a job application process. There will be, you know, the essentials lists and the desired lists of, you know, um, requirements or uh, level of, of knowledge that you need to bring to the table. So you might find that, you know, on, on your essentials is, they want you to at least demonstrate a first degree or a master's 
And in some cases, you know, they might then, you know, in the desired list, it could be work experience that relates to the particular topic. So you shouldn't be limited by feeling that, oh, I haven't worked in industry for 10 years or five years, etc. Or am I going straight from, um, you know, master's into the PhD level? And in many cases, or at least for myself, I'll speak for myself, uh, my high school grades didn't matter. If anything, my high school grades stopped mattering a long time ago. Nobody really asked for what I got at O-level or at A-level. And um, even my, my first degree, to a degree it matters, but it doesn't matter that much anymore. Because, uh, for example, I didn't really have a first a strong first degree. However, I managed to recover in my second degree, so my master's, did really, really well. I had a distinction and passed, I think, in the top 3% of the country. And then I had a um, really, really strong dissertation. I think I talked about this in one of the episodes, episode one, that your dissertation is really, really vital. And so that got published into a, um, you know, um, a peer-reviewed document that is available out there. So sometimes it's those things that matter. What happened in the past doesn't really, really matter. So... It's more about, I think, your tenacity as well, your grit, your passion, and all those kind of other elements. I don't know what you'd like to add to that, Gwen. Yeah, I think um, what you say is very important, Rue, because um, even me, I got, I don't know, a 2-1 for my undergrad, and then I got a distinction for my master's. But even I was a bit like, but am I worthy to do a PhD? When I applied to my university, I was still like on edge, will they accept me? Maybe they won't. Even though I had the essential, um, the minimum requirements, but I was still on edge that maybe something won't work out. So we would like to encourage you guys, even if you have the grades and maybe are feeling unsure, you should go for it. If you want to do it, you should go for it and don't let grades be what put you off. Um you you can always you can have bad moments but you can always recover even if your transcript is not correct on all levels you have one one module that you did badly but you did better in the others don't let those things in, uh, discourage you the main things like rue said um with the phd it's beyond just your uh, qualifications and we will segue into those other things that can help your application um, in a second. But I think it'll be good, Ruth, if we just gave an example. So we have a friend, right, mm-hmm. um, who actually didn't do um, a master's. Yeah. So one of my peers, um, when I was studying my PhD, she actually didn't have a master's. And when I drilled down to the bottom of it, it was she just went straight from um, her first degree, her uh, bachelor's, straight into a PhD without work experience either. Wow. And for me, that was a hold on, <laughs> you know, hold on, Jackie. What's going on here? Her name is not Jackie, by the way. But um, so when I asked about how she managed to bypass that whole process, it came down to the idea of she had a very, very strong first degree. And then she also had, you know, the the background of a very strong um, university um, in terms of Russell Group or Red Brick University. Some of you may not know those terminologies. So Russell Groups, you know, could be your Warwick's, etc., cetera, um, universities of Manchester and so on. Your uh, Red Bricks could be your Oxford's, Cambridge, uh, and, and so on. So sometimes I know that may seem very elitist, but those things do unfortunately matter. And for some people, those things can help them bypass the system in a way, as long as they can demonstrate very good grades as well. So they're almost exceptional in a way. So there are ways to even, yeah, avoid the middle step of doing a master's degree. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I um, I know some people who've um, done, um, who've skipped a bachelor's degree and gone straight into a master's because they have 15 years of work experience and they've been able to demonstrate how that work experience almost equals the skills you get out of a bachelor's degree. But I've not heard the bachelor's to undergrad until this situation so you know look into it guys sometimes you don't need to do a master's or even if you do a master's because you can have the four-year master's can't you Mm. where you slide in an an mphil um into because i know some people do bachelor's degrees that are four years Mm. and they are required to do some type of research for their bachelor's and that almost equates to a master's for some universities. Mm-hmm. So don't be put off. Really look into it. Send emails and ask questions because you might actually be able to slide straight into a PhD. Oh.
Just to clarify, um, Gwen used some terminology in there that some of you may not be able to recognize. So MPhil means a master's in philosophy and MRes stands for or represents a master's in research. So these, even before I started my PhD, I actually wasn't even familiar with the idea that there were other types of masters. I just used to know of MA and MSc. And MPhil and MRes are very good segues for you to actually bypass certain things and go straight into PhD. So let's say you're in your undergrad and you really know that your end goal is a PhD. I would even advise that you bypass MSc and MA and go straight to an MRes or MPhil and just get on the program that way because that will also help to cut some time on your PhD journey. Yes, I know people who've done um, the MPhil and it's cut a year off their PhD. So it was a master's, mm. but it cut a year off their PhD. And to some extent, though, I know people who've not completed the PhD journey, but they've been awarded an yeah. MPhil. So typically how that works, um, because when you are enrolled onto a PhD, we will go into greater detail at a later stage. But just to clarify, since we're on this topic quickly, um, you are all enrolled on an MRes uh, when you start your, your PhD. And so after what's called a transfer or different different universities, they've got different technology. After about a year and a half, 18, 12 to 18 months, if you pass the particular examination that happens there you then get enrolled into a phd so what gwen i guess is also saying is if you don't pass that so we do know quite a couple of people who actually don't pass actually a lot of people don't pass um when you drop out by choice or get asked to leave the program you actually graduate with an mres or mphil at that particular point so you actually get to leave the phd program holding something rather than empty-handed yeah um it's not ideal scenario i'm sure for those people but at least you come out of it with something mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, um, that's kind of that aspect of it. You've got your grades transcript. You're thinking, am I good enough? Can I meet? And the university is saying, yes, you can. Or maybe you have one odd thing that doesn't quite match up with the criteria. Ask questions, email, talk to people. Do mm -hmm. not be discouraged at that level. Um, Rue, if you've got anything to add before we move on to the I, next. I think the last thing I'd like to add, um, it just came up uh, quickly. So even if you have a master's degree and let's say you have you had to do six modules and your modules were average, perhaps, you know, you didn't do so great. But your final module on the master's is the dissertation. Typically, the dissertation carries the most. So in many universities, you'll find that it carries 60 credits. And then you'll have maybe six other modules that were 20, 20, 20, 20. The thing that actually matters at the end is the one that carries the most weighting, your dissertation. So if you actually slam that dissertation, you know, slam dunk, you know, hit it out of the park, <laughs> really do well, and get a very, very good grade, like a distinction level dissertation, and you may have very weak modules, they won't even care about your grades transcripts on your modules. They will just literally look at the dissertation, and you might even be a notch higher than somebody else who had a mediocre dissertation, but graduated with a higher grade than you, because the research skills are what really matter. And modules don't particularly help to demonstrate that. It's almost just essays. Mm -hmm. But a dissertation, you're actually collecting data. You're actually doing the stuff that you will be required to demonstrate on a PhD journey. So just keep that in mind as well that, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could we could carry on um, giving you guys examples, but I think we've covered some of the main issues that maybe we encountered um, or friends have mentioned in terms of, you know, I finished my master's and now I'm thinking about a PhD, but I have these issues or things that I'm not sure about. The other thing that... Um, we thought um, we would be important to, to discuss with you guys is, um, you know, some people, um, like for me, example, I did my master's and then I took a career break and then um, went back to do my PhD. So we've had people in conversation since we launched the podcast kind of say, you know, what would you say to people that maybe took a career break? So maybe they do have that master's degree and maybe they did have those grades that are required, but they took a career break or um, they wanted to pursue a certain career. Now they've changed their mind and they want to do a PhD. Um, what would you advise them? Or if they feel like maybe they've been out of education for too long, what would you say to people in those situations that are coming from corporate or what would you say? So, um, I, I, like I said, I did that. I took six years out. I was working in research development. Um, I worked at two universities 
And for me, I was working in a university environment. So I was helping academics write research proposals, um, apply for funding on their research proposals. And the more I was helping people do this, the more I was like, I want to do my own research. I have some ideas. I would love to explore this and just give the option of uh, career in research a chance. So for me, it came from my environment, you know, continuously reminding me that is this not something you're passionate about? Is this not something you wanted to do? And that's how I left a full-time job to then start a PhD. Um, the only thing that drove me was passion. I had this idea in my head that I just could not let go. And I wanted to really dig deep into it and come out of it with a qualification as well. So that's how I decided to leave my job and start um, a PhD. But um, Rue, that was not the same for you in terms of a big six career break, but you still had things that you did during your bachelor's and master's that fed into your skills that you brought to your PhD. Yeah, so I mean, even just to add on slightly to what Gwen said, and as much as that's not my experience, I think a lot of these things are like riding a bicycle. Once you learned to ride a bicycle once you've learned to go to you know high age once you've been immersed in the higher education environment you've built certain skills you know that muscle when it's reactivated Mm -hmm. you know it kicks back in gear it may take a little while for it to get warmed up again but you will pick up those skills in terms of you know can i still remember how to reference or maybe it's changed you know there's there's now there was harvard referencing you know at a point in time like last year now we're using appa for example you know you will learn how to do those things and so i don't think that should put you off um if you've taken a career break if you've gone off to to work start a family etc don't limit yourself so go ahead but um my my experience was quite different so i went almost straight from masters onto the phd journey so i graduated from my masters in november 2014 and started my phd 10th of january 2015 so clearly there wasn't much of a break there however i gained my work experience as i was going through education um, I think you recall from my previous explanations that throughout undergrad I worked and I amassed um, work experience that tallied up to about three to four years work experience and then I took a two-year master's program such that I could be able to work again I got another year's work experience then I took a little break between my undergrad and my master's so in all I still tallied up enough work experience to about to the tune of maybe four and a half to five years and you know it's not an essential uh, requirement on a PhD program, as we've already identified, there are people who do progress onto that without work experience. But it's good to be able to demonstrate certain skills, being able to apply certain knowledge in the workspace, being able to come with those, you know, um, administration skills that you do get in the work environment, working under pressure, teamwork. Because in research, you will have to work as a team with your research um, supervisors, etc. You know, some of those things that working under pressure, working to deadlines, etc., which you can demonstrate ability through having been in industry. So, you know, whether you took a break, whether you didn't, you will still, um, there's nothing holding you back is what I'm trying to say. You will face a different set of challenges, but, you know, challenges will be different for everybody and that shouldn't hold you back either way. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important at this point to say, guys, there's different reasons that people aren't able to pursue um, further education when they want to do it. Um, You know, we've got responsibilities in life, this whole adulting thing, you know, the reason why you had to go to work um, and not maybe continue with your further studies could be, you know, you didn't have the finances or maybe you wanted to go traveling or, you know, maybe you had never had work experience before and now you wanted to get a bit of work experience and then you started enjoying, you know, living your life and then now you want to carry on with that journey that you'd always wanted to do um so gaps don't be discouraged by gaps Mm. at any point in your education they're good things like what Rue was saying they're skills that you will get from those very things that will help you in the PhD journey so it's positives guys and Rue I I feel like you have more to to add to this yeah, so even something that came to mind is, um, you know, I know our listeners are, are varied um, 
ages and backgrounds and you might be thinking okay these girls sound young yes we are in our you know early 30s um so you know we might have an older audience that might be thinking what about the rest of us who took a gap to go start a family Mm -hmm. etc you know what is that like um you know can I go back and do a PhD? And I think certainly, for example, I mean, Gwen will give you her example of the, the age demographics in her cohort. But in my cohort, I was one of the youngest ones. Mm. Um, and I remember actually one of the guys I graduated with in the end, he was 76. Wow. Um, and the other one was 70. And Wow. Was, yeah. And, 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 and for them, it was we've gone through everything. They actually used to laugh and say, you're the same age as my granddaughters, etc. You know, but they went back to school in the, you know, elderly ages, etc. And it was a challenge they had. But then a lot of my peers, to be quite honest, were late 30s, early 40s, and young mums who had, you know, kids who were around the ages of 8 and 10, etc. And they were balancing, you know, work life, PhD, etc. Because a lot of people do do that. Yeah. You are now at a place where you can actually finance yourself or afford to do it yourself. Yeah. Because sometimes the career paths that we do take on, you know, those are financed by mum and dad or whatever the scenario may be. And now you're going back and you're being able to do it on your own dime. But yeah. then the, the challenges are now you're, some of you may be married or you may have children or, you know, et cetera. So don't let age hold you back either. And yeah. As much as nowadays it may seem like a lot more of the younger people are pursuing PhDs rather than, as opposed to what it used to be, you know, don't let it hold you back. And you may, as an older person, you might have some challenges on technology, et cetera, but it will, like Gwen was saying, you will, that muscle will come back. <laughs> I think, Rue, even you're stretching to people who are in their 70s. I mean, on my PhD court, I have people who are in their 40s. Mm. Um, like she said, who are married, having kids, you know, juggling life. I have someone on my court who's a doctor, you know, and he's doing it part-time. I have someone who used to be a lawyer working full-time, and now she's quit and started doing her PhD. And I mean... All of these people, like, we have such a huge split in our program, actually, um, or in my year. We have people who have done the career thing and are kind of, like, early 30s, mid-30s, maybe some in their 40s. And then we have people who are, like, 23, Mm. (laughs) 25. And I'm always like, oh, you know, our age, our... And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, we're not the same age because I took time out to work and it comes out in conversation like oh I've never actually had a job or you know I last year when I was doing my master's and I'm like oh my gosh that was like you know eight years ago for me when I could say I just finished my master's so anyone any age you will find your cohort will have a wide range of age groups um so do not be discouraged um by that another thing that I will say Rue which we always talk about but I think because maybe me and you can't speak to that we haven't unpacked it a lot but I think it'll be useful for our listeners is the idea of doing a PhD part-time um I didn't do my PhD um part-time and Rue you didn't we we both did ours full-time but at some point I considered doing my PhD part-time because I wasn't sure about how my PhD would be financed. Um, so you could also do your PhD, you know, part-time. It takes six years, sometimes seven years, um, which is longer than the three and a half years that if you're doing it full-time. But that can, that can be something that works for people who are juggling different things in their lives and still want to do it. Um, I will say, though, some universities won't accept part-time students um when we're talking about application i'll share with you one of the you know applications i made to a university and i couldn't do my phd part-time because they don't take part-time um students for whatever reason but it's something worth thinking about Mm. if you are working full-time and you're thinking "Ah, maybe i could there are opportunities for you to do this part-time um yeah, so... Yeah. I mean, the part-time route is there. I've got quite a few friends who are doing that. Now, more so because I'm working in the university space. A lot of my colleagues are actually doing uh, their PhDs part-time. Also, because universities don't really employ people without PhDs anymore. So, um, they have to actually end up being enrolled on that. Um, yeah. So, are these people that already lecturers they or... well you can't be a full lecturer if you don't have a PhD so what are, what are they doing they are assistant lecturers they have assistant to start there and lecturers. then yeah ah. and then you can only now want 
some universities, etc. And if you were already a lecturer, you're now being encouraged to start okay. your PhD because so that's now already, an es- it's an essential, no longer a desired. So then already working with students, teaching, and mm. then it's uh, they're encouraged to In- still do a PhD. Yeah. So one of my friends wow. actually started her PhD last week, but she's an assistant lecturer. She had a very colorful career in um, marketing and everything. Wow. And done so well, came back, uh, decided she wanted to go down the academic pathway and lecture. But with all her experience, it still wouldn't qualify her to get a full-time lecturing role because she doesn't have a PhD. Because nowadays, it's a desired... I mean, it's a it's an essential qualification and not a desired. So you will find people doing part-time, as Gwen is saying. And part-time, in as much as they say, seven to eight years. Some, some, and someone who I know last week finished in four years. But other universities will say they don't want part-timers as well because it affects completion rates and data and statistics, which really, really matter for research funding at university institutes. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> but I, I found that very interesting, Rue, what you're saying, that people are ready in universities working as lecturers without PhDs. I, I've encountered this at my own um, university, but these we're talking people who started you know, working in the university as assistant lecturers or whatever, like kind of were 15, 16 years of already doing that job. Because Mm -hmm. like you say, of late, it's definitely been an essential. You rarely get people now without a PhD starting. You you, you can't. I I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone. It's a a base. It's actually called the basic minimum requirement is a PhD. (laughs) But before that, people could. Could. Mm. And that's interesting. That's, oh, wow. Because you will find that a lot of maybe people who are in senior positions in universities, they might actually not have a PhD, but because they've been in the university for so long and in those roles, there was a time you could be a lecturer without a PhD or be in an academic space but nowadays it is an essential and you will find a lot of academics who don't have the title are now enrolled onto part-time PhDs alongside their job and it's you know there's even a time frame to, to complete all of that wow so that's that's interesting I don't know if we've got people listening who are already um working at universities as, as lecturers and maybe this is something that speaks to you but for me personally I think that's fantastic that the opportunity is there for them and also that they're not um, kind of disqualified from continuing because they've mm. got the work experience. Um, and for- the university will kind of take on, um, typically take on the the cost, I think, from what I know. Even one of the research um, seminars we had recently was show our university was actually very proud of the number of um, staff members that have PhDs and, you know, 70% actually now. And then the other 30 was basically justified as in people who don't have but are going to have. Right. And those are now even important metrics in terms of university rankings, institutions. So it all goes back to all of this data. But that's that's really... I, I love... I, I like that I brought this up because mm. my own experience, like un, until... Like outside of university has been people doing PhDs part-time but in other jobs. Mm. They're a lawyer or they're a doctor or a police officer and they just want to do, or even people who are nurses who mm. want to do a PhD. So it's quite interesting that even within the academic space, there are people who are already working there but are doing PhDs. But like you said, our audience is very varied, but we hope, you know, we speak to some of you guys on encouraging you in whatever career you're in that you can do a PhD part-time. You don't have to um, resign from your job. Um, and then, you know, think about the consequences financially or lifestyle, um, when you, if you do go down the PhD journey. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just something that came off the cuff, um, (laughs) with me and Ruth, but this is how it works, right? Yeah. We, we just have topics come up, but, um, I think Ruth, another thing that I, um, think is important for us to talk about is, um, when you're kind of thinking about doing a PhD, um, we've kind of talked about the grades, right? Mm. We've kind of talked about where you are in life, age, work experience, or maybe gaps in your um, education. But in terms of the decision to do a PhD, because a PhD is really a 
research project you don't have modules no you don't have modules you well at have... least in the uk in the states they they do well but i mean yeah. we're, speaking, we're, we're speaking about the uk rule i would never just speak. i just had to put that out there no just no in no case. but if you're listening you know we're only talking about mm. the uk because i have no idea about the u.s <laughs> system but um one thing that um along with you know we've said the grit we've said the passion but guys a PhD is a research project. So unless you come onto a PhD, um, on the PhD path through a funded um, project, so where an academic has received some funding and then they want PhD students and postdoctoral researchers to work on their idea, their project, you will be required to come up with the topic yourself and demonstrate why that topic is an important thing and why you're the best person to research that topic, what you know about that topic so far in terms of academic literature, and also why that university, why that department, why that research centre, and also what skills do you bring and how will a PhD help you progress your career or what's the plan once you finish this phd how is it going to help you go forward in life Mm. so i mean these are a lot of things but these are important things to have a sit down with yourself because you will be required to demonstrate this in your application at different areas but it's really important to be very clear on why you want to do this and why you and like just why in general so essentially the big so what i mean the yes. amount of times i had that on my phd journey so what yeah so you need to sit down with yourself and say all of this but so what what is the end goal what why are we yeah what, what is the purpose of this yeah so what yeah and i mean we're gonna unpack this Rue, when we talk about application process but your supervisors mm. oh my gosh they're instrumental with a bachelor's and a master's, you apply to a course with pre-written modules and then you have the, your dissertation, your thesis, 60 credits where you can decide a topic. But for the most part, there's already set curricula that you follow. But PhD, there's no curricula to follow. You and your supervisors are going to set the tone, set the pace of what you cover. And it's very important that you choose supervisors that match your project in terms of their own academic experience and qualifications, but also who who have a vision, the Mm. same vision that you have. And sometimes it's difficult to get that when you're applying, Mm. but email people that are already doing research on this topic, potential supervisors, and ask to meet them for a coffee. I mean, it's corona time, so maybe not uh, a coffee in person, but a virtual one. But go and feel the energy, the energy Mm. between you and your supervisors. You can pick that up when someone says, I don't think that's going to work, or this is fantastic. Then you can tell this person gets me. Rue, I don't know what you have to say about that. So, I mean, to add to that, um, and as much as you can choose your supervisors, I also think I need to clarify that a lot of the time you actually can't as well. um, At least at the university I was at and where I work now, you do get allocated supervisors. Um, Sometimes they will see a topic and they will just match you because nowadays the research, the way things are in research, it can be a little tricky in terms of availability hours and all of that. But if you do what Gwen was saying, you reach out to the individual prior to perhaps submitting your application or proposal, you establish a sense of rapport. You know, I did that. I, I did reach out uh, to the two potential people I wanted, such that I was able to then put on my application that, if possible, could I have uh, Dr. XYZ and Professor XYZ on my um, research team if I am successful. And at least it wouldn't be, you know, they wouldn't be blindsided when when they get asked that, would you be able, are you happy to take on candidate XYZ on your project? Because at least they will say, yes, I am aware of them and their project actually links to my work in this way and that way. And I would actually support this application for this reason. And that might actually work in your favor because you have somebody who actually can then A, be a reference because you do need to submit references. You Mm -hmm. need an academic reference and you need a, a professional reference. So that work experience does eventually come into play at some place because... I remember for me, at least, I had to submit an academic reference 
and a professional um, work reference. And so one of the people that I chose as my supervisors or who I asked to have on my team and was fortunately allocated was on my academic references. And then on some projects, like um, Gwen was saying, um, they are predetermined in the sense that they are um, linked to a research project. It could be, you know, Erasmus project, uh, you know, British Council, whatever it is. And because they have certain goals they have to meet, you are just literally coming on board as an ad hoc uh, researcher, but yes. via a PhD route. And at the end of the, the project, you will get a PhD, whereas other people, that's their day job. So you don't have a lot of flex in that. And um, But nowadays, those seem to be the PhDs that are more common because they are the ones tied to funding, unless if you're self-funded. you know. So PhDs, which has scholarships and they're open-ended, like the ones Gwen and I got those are now rare and very, very, yeah, very rare. I know, yeah, yeah. They're, and they're competitive. <laughs> but we'll unpack we'll that. But Rue, you're absolutely right. I think my experience, um, like when I was applying to um, the university that I'm studying at, Warwick, um, they actually, in your application, they would say who who do you want to be your supervisor mm. and why that person so if you haven't had prior communication with your supervisor and then they get this application land on their desk saying this person is a would be the perfect supervisor it wouldn't work so in to avoid those situations at Warwick they would actually say we want a statement from your um proposed supervisor in the application Mm. so you get to see what they say um, but it's not like a long thing, but it's just basically them saying, yes, you know, the project fits in with my work like this. And I've already had a conversation and I'm happy to take them on as a student. And so then there's kind of not that allocating at a later. So for us, for Warwick, for me to be accepted onto the course, I already had to have my supervisor marked out and they had to do a statement saying they would take me on. Um, as a student, it varies across universities. Like Rue saying, some universities allocate once you've been accepted, but it helps to have had that conversation with this potential supervisor in advance. Mm. You can imagine, even it's like a reference, if you apply for a job and then you just put someone down as a referee mm. and they don't know you're applying for a job, you know, then they're going to be like, well, I didn't even know you were trying to go down that path or I could have actually helped you with your application mm. because you missed this and this out or I didn't know you were trying to do this for your career. Mm. So it helps having that rapport ahead of submitting your application with a supervisor. So I was just thinking, some of you may be, you know, sat there thinking, well, I'm all the way in Zimbabwe. I'm trying to apply for a project in the UK. How, you know, I have no idea who these people are. So a tip, what I would suggest you do, because this is what we do in our career, uh, go online. So say you are trying to apply to University of Warwick randomly, because Gwen's just mentioned that's where she's doing her PhD. (laughs) You maybe want to look at, um, you know, politics and gender. Obviously, you go and look for the topics. You find out that Professor XYZ and Dr. XYZ are, you know, the, 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 the gurus in that area. You will find on their profiles, typically academics will write open to taking on PhD students or not. For example, I haven't written that on my own profile because I do, I've got a PhD student, but I don't want to take on anyone else. Um, so I won't write that. So typically, if I, I did actually get two PhD requests recently and I turned them down because I don't have the work capacity at the moment. But, you know, students did reach out and say you taught me or I heard a few from this I had a student from Australia actually say I heard a few because or I read your work online you reach out you find their profiles you read about them online so you might not know them you know you might not have met them you're not going to be able to see them in person but reach out I think Rue you're absolutely right and I feel like maybe it also depends on confidence levels, right? Where you're like randomly emailing this professor from your room in Zim might seem like, whoa, this is this is a lot. But um, I also did, this is something that I did when I was applying. I went through the list of um, PhD students mm. in that department and found someone who was kind of in the same... Um, area of mine and had been supervised by my supervisor because on most 
pages, academic pages, they would list the students that they're supervising mm. or topics that they would like to supervise. So you can actually go get in touch with some PhD students. I have had like five people email me saying, oh, I know you're supervised by, you know, this professor. What are they like? Can you give me some advice? And I've actually, you know, fed, given feedback on mm. their applications or how to interact with that um, with my supervisor yeah. so sometimes you can even go through the avenue of other PhD students but guys the key is do your research check the center check the department check your supervisor's topic and also be knowledgeable on your own topic that you're proposing this is not I just woke up and I want to randomly research this like they will ask you questions and if you have a conversation with a supervisor and you're coming confused and they say, do you know this person who did this and you, you, you don't, don't even know, know the key authors in your area. That, that is not, why would someone take you on? It's not inspiring. Know? <laughs> it's not. So guys, really think about what you want to research. Look around, just Google. Google mm. the topic. You'll see loads of academic journals or newspaper articles. And then when you're having these initial conversations where you're trying to see if you want to do a PhD, you're coming across as someone who's done some legwork. You can drop in names. You can drop in years of publication. Yes. It shows that, okay, you are already getting your feet wet in there. Yeah. And, you know, even like I think what Ben was saying, reaching out, even if you're in Zimbabwe, you might be thinking, oh, I'm not confident. If you're not confident enough to do that, then maybe it's not for you because yes. you're going to have to do a lot of self-starting on this. Yeah. And like she was saying, you know, this is not a defined process. You define the process. So if you are not willing to have those conversations to put yourself out of your comfort zone and you expect things to come to you, it won't work. It won't work. Yeah. So even just um, last point to add to this, um, I think I mentioned that I had two um, students actually reach out to me recently. One of my own ex um, students from my master's program that I was lecturing on and one student from Australia. And in as much as I turned them down because I only have capacity to take on one at the moment, um, because they reached out to me, they were very polite, they explained everything. I felt that I felt compelled to even then introduce them to other colleagues who I knew who were willing to take wow. on students who are actually very good and they might not have known this. So in my head, I was like, okay, this is what you want. Actually, I could better connect you to this person because they are more okay. you know, knowledgeable on that. And if anything, I can then speak to them and say, and as much as I'm not part of your research team, I can consult. So there is a student that I then decided to connect to somebody else. And I then offered to be on the project in a consulting um, capacity. So that you, by reaching out, that just all came about by reaching out and being able to put yourself across succinctly and being able to, you know, just be very clear about what you want to do. You will be surprised on the other end. Somebody will be compelled to actually wow. then go the extra mile and connect you to the right people. And I mean, if you're, if you're applying, right, mm. and... Like you're saying, someone reaches out to you as a, as a lecturer yeah. saying, you know, can you be my potential supervisor? If you introduce them to another academic, there's almost some kudos, yeah. right? That comes with, you were referred by another academic. As and I can even write a, a, a reference for you because I am going to write a reference exactly. for that particular girl yeah. um, in, in addition to all of this because, yeah. you know, that and that's the stuff that Gwen was saying that in, in your letter of, um, what is it? The um, personal statement. Yes. You will you will be required at some point to mention yeah. uh, prospective supervisors and yes. they may have to put a statement forward. Yeah. And if you haven't built these kind of reports, how are they going to put a statement forward if they, they don't, don't know, know who you are? They don't know you. Yeah. Um, just to wrap things up, well, not wrap things up, we've just got a couple more points. Um, Rue, I think it's important. We've talked about impressive proposal, good supervisors, fit to department, but we haven't talked... And this is a big topic and we'll unpack it when, when we're talking about the application process. But guys, do your research about the universities you are choosing. Because sometimes you go and times higher education and be like, I need to be in the university that's cheap in the top five or in the top ten. But that's the university as a whole. You, on your topic, how is that university Faring. Right. <laughs> how is that university? How is that university or that department mm. right or that subject right? What is their research center looking like? Do they attract funding? Are they, you know, are they recognized in, in the you know um university okay the the, the ref there these these capacity excellence frameworks. frameworks and all sorts of things that you do need to know but that you may not know. So those things are important. So sorry to cut in on you, Gwen. I got a little excited there. <laughs> I'll even give myself as an example. So I mentioned that I did my PhD at Bournemouth University. Some of you may be like, Bournemouth? 
huh? what is that? But in my area, so I looked at sport governance and community support for mega sport events. So I think I mentioned that, you know, FIFA 2010, FIFA 2010 World Cup was my case study. But I look at organizations such as FIFA, Olympics, etc., and sport governance and the impact in societies. And Bournemouth is one of the top five in the UK um, for that area. Um, you know, uh, others in that top five are, you know, Coventry, Loughborough, Surrey, etc., but at the in the bigger scheme of things, those universities are actually not even top ten in the UK. So I could have said, "Oh, I want to go to a top ten university. I want to go to, for example, let's say Warwick, or I want to go to Reading." But their areas or their departments on on you know sport management are not, are not, are not even a bleep in my area. Yes. So when I then you know for example um, one of the universities, actually I think you need to really really think about that. So be conscious about that. Look at the research center, the ranking, and all of that. Yeah, I think. Same as you, I was looking by subjects, not by university. It's nice to be in a university that's top 10. Mm, but with a those, nice name. It's a nice name. <laughs> but then the esteem of the people who are in, known in those fields, they might not sit in those top 10 universities. So sometimes it's actually the your supervisors who determine what you know the kudos you get mm. and recognition you get the doors that they open mm. and they will might not sit in universities that are you know top 10 i mean in the ranking process for universities guys there's it's a million so, you'd be surprised guys it's not a clear cut <laughs> you're number one you're number one mm. that's it like there's so many things that go into calculate rankings that like i said do your research. not even academic related even sometimes yeah so it's, it's <laughs> I, I don't solely even, like, I don't even go on about the ranking of mm. my department because there's different factors that go into, into the ranking. But for me, for sure, I definitely, I was looking at by subject, by subject and supervisors. Those Very are the important. two things that determine my going to Warwick University. That was it. Because if you are looking at going at it by university, for example, these are realities that happen on the PhD journey. Your supervisor may change jobs. Ooh. along your journey Ooh. this is a real scenario for many people and you've now applied and said oh i'm going to oxford for the name <laughs> I'm, I'm, by the way this is not shade in case you might be perceiving that you know we're throwing shade no, no no these are just real scenarios and then you know halfway through your tenure second year your supervisor says actually I'm i am going. moving to southampton university my friend you'll be stuck so the best thing and m- most most um research students actually move with your supervisor because yes your topic really is with them because if you now remain wherever you were because you want to really graduate with a degree from XYZ um, University, they might not be an expert who knows your area. Exactly. You will actually, you might end up actually dropping off because now you are lost. Your new research team will not have an understanding or any clue of what you're doing. They might not have the same passion, etc. So as Gwen was saying, the topic and your supervisor, mm-hmm. those are the ones that you really need Determine to care about. Determine the university And then choice. be flexible because these are, you know, your PhD may take you three to five years. Yeah. And in that three to five years, there is no guarantee that this individual is just going to stay at that university because Gwen out there, who is not <laughs> known by anyone, says, exactly. me, I want to get a degree from whatever university. Yeah. They've got lives. People exactly. change careers. So, so just be <laughs> mindful. Don't get put off by pursuing degrees at universities that are not naturally in the top 10. I'm not knocking rankings Rue's not knocking rankings they are good on cvs but if you are even thinking about oh when i finish my career it's good if i can say my degrees from oxford but if you're looking for a job in that employer will know they will know could you know but oxford is a good university all round amazing but for this particular catering mm. for this catering degree i'm taking your joke about people catering. saying people saying real study catering when you know like it's out of order that people even say that but i'm just saying they will know but oxford is not ranked highly for catering guys when i when i applied to, to, to for my current job the fact that i came from bournemouth university had a lot of clout yeah. because the minute you say bournemouth in a particular area bournemouth love brassari they know what it does it's a, ah, she must know what she's doing. It, everybody kept saying, we heard you from Bournemouth. Oh, do you know about this? Do you know this this researcher? Because that's where a lot of the top, the top researchers are split between those three universities, mm-hmm. you know, and a few others in the top five. And everybody was like, do you know about this? So your, 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 your employer or wherever you wind up, whether it's industry or whatever, they will know. So don't be fooled. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like I said, for both Rue and I, it was literally subject 
and fit to the department of research center and supervisor. Mm. Then it was the university after that. And we, we are where we are because of that. We will unpack some of these things when we're talking about the application process. But, you know, this is just, you know, a conversation we're having with you guys to say when you're thinking about a PhD, just look into some of these things and they will help you in this decision-making process of to do a PhD or to not. Lastly, Rue, I feel like me and you could carry on, but lastly, 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 I would like to dispel this understanding or this word on the street that, you know, people who do PhDs are only going to be lecturers or you should only do a PhD if you want to work in academia. Or you are a nerd. Hey, yeah! Let it be known. No. I'm not a nerder. No. <laughs> I mean, nerd can, okay. nerd, nerd can be cute. I mean, I'm a, cute. I'm a, yeah, I'm a balance, you know. Yeah, it's a balance. <laughs> but um, guys, I will say this, and you will, as you listen more and you hear where we are in life or the journey that we, we've been through or went through as we do our patients, you will realize that it's quite ignorant to even say, own, people who do PhDs want to be lecturers. That's not the only career path. And you know what? You can even do a PhD because you want to. And not even use it. <laughs> yeah, don't use it at all. Just because you want to. I, I mean, have a friend that returned to Oman and she's she's very wealthy. Yeah. And she's, you know, sitting on her PhD. She wanted to do it because she wanted to do she something to edify do her life. Or, I mean... Family empire and, and so on. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't even judge people who are like, I just want the doctor at the front of my neck. I mean, if you've got the time and effort and energy, good for you. But we will talk about careers mm. um, that you can, you know, you can go into with a PhD in another podcast. Um, no, another podcast, another, another episode. episode. Yeah, but I just wanted to close on that note. Very, very important. So many, avenues, so many. So I mean, we can even just throw out there just one or two examples. A friend that I studied with, that's you know consulting for British Gas. A yeah. friend that's consulting for Bupa, Bupa Medicines. You yeah. know, etc. There are so many career options. Yeah. People like me who've chosen an academic path. You know, that's my choice because yeah. I wanted to. And it's even not I have, the only Yeah, and I've got goals for other things beyond that. Yeah, it's know. not the only it's not the only part. Pathway is this has been great. Um we really hope this has been useful um for you guys. We are going to sign off now, Rue. It's been fantastic. Um, guys, as usual, please share, like our page, like our page, subscribe to Spotify, <laughs> subscribe, and you know our handles by now. If you don't, guys, I'm a bit disappointed. But drop it, us a comment, like our pictures, send yeah. us messages. You guys have been doing so well, so keep that keep good that. energy coming exactly. through, and, and we'll keep bringing you good content. And engage with <laughs> us, guys. Engage. You're already engaging now. Keep engaging with us. And we're excited um, for you guys to hear the next installment, which will be on the application process for the PhD. We can't wait to unpack all that for you guys. See you guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.